scripture today is from um, various selections from Proverbs. So, my son, be attentive to my wisdom, incline your ear to my understanding. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Let your fountain be blessed, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman, and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. Can a man carry fire next to his chest, and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals, and his feet not be scorched? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. And now, O sons, listen to me, and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. An excellent wife who can find she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. The word of God for the people of God. All right, open up to the book of Proverbs. We'll keep the scripture uh, up on the screen if we can do that. It'd be great. We are continuing our series, The Quest for Wisdom. So the premise is that we are all born on a quest looking for uh, the way, the skill to live well. And we are not attuned to the source uh, the true source of wisdom that sets the lines of our lives straight to live as we were meant to live, which is God himself. And so we need to be rescued. We need a rescuer to bring us back into proper order and relationship with the true source of wisdom, the tree of life, Jesus himself. And just like Adam and Eve, when they chose to t take of the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, they fractured that connection to that true source of wisdom. And so we're all born disconnected, and we're all born seeking to try to find wisdom from all these different avenues in our lives. But the, the best source of wisdom, the true source of life-giving wisdom to know how to live well and satisfying and to flourish is the God of Christianity. That's what the Bible is telling us. And so God believes, obviously, God, God desires this so much from us that he sends us a rescuer, and he promises that rescuer in Genesis 3.15, one who would crush the serpent's head. And he, the, the Bible is the story of him sending that rescuer to bring us back into 
right relationship. One story leading to Jesus is what we believe. And so, so far in Proverbs, we started splitting Proverbs up into different subject matter, and we've looked at wisdom and desires. The desires that flow from our hearts are many. How do we control those? How do we um, direct those towards this true source of wisdom? We've looked at wisdom and work. How do we reconcile and think about the different, there's so many different jobs represented in this room. How do we think about what we do and what is the purpose in it? And we talked about that, and then we talked about wisdom and money. Um, And this week we are talking about wisdom and sex. And I just want to say this. This is the issue of our time, what we think of sexuality um, and what we think of sex. And obviously this could be a really awkward talk. Uh, So I'm, I'm being really careful how I choose my words. I'm also recognizing that someone in this room, or more, more than one person, will probably be offended maybe by some of the things that I say. Um, and if you are, the dialogue is open. Um, I want to have conversation with you. Our elders want to talk to you. So if you, if you want to grab coffee, if you have questions about anything that I say um, this morning, especially because it is so sensitive, um, we want to talk to you about that. It's okay to have those questions or those doubts or those disagreements. Um, I, I let you you know, in behind the curtain here a little bit. I don't know if some of you all may know this, but I read my sermons to you. So I prepare my sermons like they're a letter to the congregation, and then I just read them. Like, I try to make it look like I'm not reading them, but I basically read them. And, and this morning, I'm so, I want to be so careful with my words that it may look like I'm reading way more than normal. I, I hope we can just kind of sit in that um, this morning and be okay with that. This sermon also is going to take a little bit longer than most of my sermons. There's so much to say on this subject matter that I was overwhelmed. Uh, poor uh, Becca back here. <laughs> I changed the scripture around maybe 10 times this week and just to the point of like, we don't even know what you're talking about, like what verses you're using. I've actually changed it since we, since we read this. And so it's just kind of all over the place, but I'll try to lead us through it uh, well. Um, let me pray. Father, I think it's vital just as Christians living in the public arena and world that we live in with social media and everything that we just need to know how to engage in this conversation thoughtfully and intelligently, boldly but winsomely. We need wisdom in this area as much as any area that we could talk about, any subject matter we could talk about in Proverbs. So Holy Spirit, help us. Prepare our hearts. Just some of us in this room, including myself, we need to be convicted of our sin. We might turn from it and turn towards something better. Um, Some of us are struggling and we feel defeated. I just pray that you show us the victory that we have in Christ. For those um, who are living in uh, just paralyzing shame, break cycles of shame. I pray that you would do that even. I know that that can happen over months and years, but I pray that you would do a supernatural work even just this morning to bring people into the sweet enjoyment of the freedom that they can have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this sermon, uh, it follows, I believe, well after a sermon on wisdom and money, wisdom and sex, sex and money go hand in hand. I was telling you all reading a book by Paul Tripp that I highly recommend simply called Sex and Money. And he shows how those two things are related and how those are two very powerful um, things that can lead us astray. That essentially Satan, evil, seeks to use those two things, maybe more than anything, to to 
lead us out of or away from relationship with God and this true source of wisdom. Where our desires for more money to obtain maybe power or control or security can easily lead to self-deception and distortion of reality, so too can our desires for sexual satisfaction. We are sexual beings. It's what we were created, part of what we were created to be, to relate to each other in intimate ways. And so what we do with our bodies, what we do with our minds, Jesus tells us that we um, don't just commit adultery physically by acting out with some, another person. We do it through, the, through our own thoughts. Um, and so we need to um, see what he has to say about the goodness of both of these things. He created money. Remember, he had a whole section in the garden called Havilah, which was just packed with gold. Money's good. Wealth is good. But it's what we do with it that matters. And our sexuality is good. It's part of God's good creation. Sex is part of God's good creation, but it can be so easily perverted. Tripp says this. He says, both give you the buzz that you're in control, while at the very same time becoming the master that progressively change you to their control. Both offer you an inner sense of well-being while having no capacity whatsoever to satisfy your heart. Both seduce you with the prospect of contentment producing pleasure, but both leave you empty and craving more. Both hold out the possibility of finally being satisfied, but instead cause you to envy whoever it is that has more or better than you do. Both sell you the lie that physical pleasure is the pathway to spiritual peace. Both are the work of the Creator's hands, but tend to promise you what only the Creator can deliver. Both are beautiful in themselves, but have become distorted and dangerous by means of the fall. And again, Proverbs isn't messing around in this area. As we read these Proverbs up here, this is a matter of life and death. It talks about lady folly leading you into, calling you into sexual temptation, and it, it's dragging you into a basement where there is a pile of bodies, is what Proverbs says. It's dragging you into and leading you into hell. What we think about sex and our sexuality is a matter of life and death. That's why it is the issue of our time in our country, maybe even in the world. So what we think about it matters. I think, fortunately, the God who created sex and money also has a lot to say about it. There's a lot of direction and there's a lot of wisdom here, especially in Proverbs, and that's awesome. That's how I know the scriptures are real. They give an accurate portrayal of the fallenness and the brokenness of the world, the struggles that each and every one of us have. We can relate to this. It has a lot of practical advice for us. So what we think about sex matters. How we handle our God-given sexual appetites matters. There's much at stake in the culture that's gone mad in the area of sexual abuse, misconduct, and deception. I don't have to reel off the statistics. We all get it. Our cultures have been completely what, what some uh, people have called pornified. It's been completely saturated in pornography. Uh, my friend Robert, who's I mentioned up here all the time, pastor in Lexington, Kentucky, wonderful podcast that he's put out. He has uh, two podcasts on just the effect of pornography on the Internet, and then he has one on trans transgenderism. Highly recommend that. It's called Every Square Inch. I got a lot of uh, stuff from him that I'm sharing with you all. But he know he... he he tells us this. He says, um, the porn industry alone has produced more money than Major League Baseball, the NBA, and the NFL combined. Let that sink in for a second. That is 
hundreds of billions of dollars. It means, and this is sobering, we love porn in our culture more than we love sports. And I, I don't mean to say this to sound funny, but it has in many ways become our national pastime. We indulge in it, we escape with it, in many ways we even celebrate it. And ironically, listen to this, in the Me Too movement era, which is good, where the abuse of sexuality started to be called out and brought to the light appropriately, offering awareness and healing to so many, ironically, the number one downloaded porn video viewed last week with 7 million views was rape porn. The brains of both drug and porn addicts, when doctors look at it, are eerily similar. It creates the same pathways in the brain and leads to very similar addiction. Our children are one click away from overdosing on sexual images that could forever change the course of their lives. Part of my story, I was hijacked by it when I was five years old. And it determined, in a lot of ways, the course of my life and the struggles that I had. All of this has profound implications upon not just our moral behavior and how we spend our time. I think sometimes we just want to relegate it to that. But we tried to form this service, the songs we're singing, the scriptures we're reading, because it's all about our identity. This has become so pervasive and so damaging that we don't even know who we are anymore. Because sexual sin just confuses. And that's ex- Satan loves it. A lot of people, you know, kind of say sometimes that Satan doesn't really worry about persecuting Christians anymore. Maybe he kind of just wipes his hands and be like, I got them. I'd go move on to other things. They're so inundated with sexual sin and brokenness. I don't have to worry about that country anymore. He set all the traps. It's a minefield. I mean, you can't drive down the street. You can't turn on your phone. It's inundated everything. And unless we set up barriers and protections, then we're just we're just out in the open. You know, I found it. I texted Robert, and I said, you know, after studying this all week long. The question I kept coming back to is how do we define what is sexuality? It, it's almost laughable, but it's like I think 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we would have, that's an easy answer. You know, our sexuality is our sexual orientation. But in today's culture, it's much more than that. People consider it their identity. Even the question of what is sexuality is a product of the sexual revolution. Sexual orientation has become, as my friend Robert says, the new identity. He says gender is the new soul. You choose your soul. So in many ways, we don't even know who we are because of the ill effects of sexual perversion. And a lot of... of, what 
we see as far as people struggling with identity is just a soul cry. Tell me who I am. What is my identity? And if you're not going to tell me, I'll just make it up. I'll figure it out for myself. And the Bible has so much to say about our identity. We are made in the image of God. We are crowned with glory and honor. Our identity comes from a creator. Identity is inherent to who we are. It's both material and spiritual, physical. It does have to do with our gender. It does have to do with who God created us, to be male and female as he created us. And I'll get more into that at the end, but I want to look at two points this morning. That Proverbs, really, the way that Proverbs talks about sexuality and sexual temptation and sin is in two ways. Through lady folly and lady wisdom. So it talks about the folly of sex and the wisdom of sex. So first, the folly of sex. So, so far we've seen in Proverbs both wisdom, and this is, this is really fascinating to me, both wisdom and folly are personified as female voices calling out to humanity. She cries aloud in the streets, right? You simpletons, how long will you continue to be simple? Naive, how long will you continue to be naive? Fools, how long will you continue to be foolish? Turn from your ways. Turn from that path. Turn back to the path of wisdom. And this is this cool hyperlink back to the garden relating to Eve in two ways. Pre-fall Eve, before she eats of that tree, as Lady Wisdom, the essential other. Remember the Azer Kenegdo, our salvation, our, the one we can't live without. It's what Eve was created to be. Much more than just our helper. And if we listen to that voice, then we will live as we were created to live, follow the right path. But then also as Lady Folly, so this post-fallen state of Eve leading mankind astray. And the reason wisdom and sin are personified is for a couple reasons. One, they are both real. So we experience this on a day-to-day basis. There are both good and evil spiritual forces at work in this world that are seeking us out. Evil is hunting us, as we say. While this world is fallen and we're fallen with it, the evil calls out like a siren song. It's a sound and a voice we're tuned into in our natural state of sin, our brokenness, our fallenness. Evil calls for us in the form of temptation to lead us astray, to keep us as fools. When we listen to Lady Wisdom... We're equipped with the skill to live well and receive the favor and blessing of God the Father. But this is not a voice we hear on our own, as Josh was just talking about, this fruit of the Spirit. It's a frequency we're not tuned into until God the Father tunes us into it by the power of the Spirit. When we're tuned in to Lady Wisdom, we're listening and understanding the wisdom of God. This enables us to spread the blessings of the garden to humanity. It makes us a powerful force, sharp instruments in God's hands to draw others into relationship with the Creator through knowledge of Jesus and His saving work, but to also be agents of change for the common good of creation. That's why we say it's about much more than just us. It starts with us, by the power of the Spirit, but it's for the good of creation, the good of our neighbors. Lady Wisdom cries in the streets for justice and obedience and humility and self-awareness and love and peace and boldness. 
while Lady Folly entices us to live outside the love of the Father in ignorance, disobedience, shame, silence, arrogance, pride, and foolishness. And like I said, it's one of Satan's most powerful tools. It talks about here in Proverbs that the, the folly of sex. Lady Folly has an endless body count. And I think, I think we look at the culture, we look at the church alone, and it's overwhelming how many casualties there have been. And some of us in this room, I know, because of how pervasive this is, we're on the brink. We're just like one moment from being found out. And a lot of us live, a lot of the anxiety we're feeling is because we know that's true. And we're terrified of being found out. But we're also terrified because we've seen people confess and bring things into the light and people don't know how to handle it. The church doesn't know what to do with it. So we're stuck. I'll either be ashamed and humiliated and, and judged and kicked out of this community that's supposed to be offering forgiveness and love and grace, or I'll just be found out and humiliated otherwise. So the church has an absolutely vital role to play in this. This has to be a place where people can be known, where people can reveal sexual brokenness and be heard and listened to and pointed in the right direction for passive healing, for counseling, for treatment. Is Flat Rock that place? Look at what it says here of her strategy, Lady Folly. It says, her lips drip with honey, her speech sweeter and smoother than oil, but in the end is bitter as wormwood and sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to hell. She intoxicates people. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. It is a wide road in a deep cavern. In other words, so sexual sin is always preventing itself as being satisfying and worthwhile opportunity. It will always appear sweet. It will always appear to feel good. So this is why we can't decide whether or not to indulge in it based on how you feel. This is, like, this is really vital if you're battling sexual temptation. Don't make your decision based on how you feel. Base your decision on what you know is right and true. That's why we need the Word of God. That's why we need an authority outside of ourselves. The truth does not come from outside in. I mean, from inside out, it comes from outside in. It comes from God to us. It's why it's not a good idea. I don't, I don't know about you, but I've prayed many a time, God, change my desires. It's not the prayer we need to pray. God doesn't need to change your desires. Your desires are good. He gave us good desires for sexual intimacy. But Lady Folly is preying on those good desires and seeking to per per pervert them the prayer should be that God would help us control and discipline our desires. Do you see the difference? Don't take away my desires. You've created me with good desires. Help me to know how to control and protect those desires. We have to build a fence around our desires, and that fence is, I think, most appropriately, the Word of God. 
I mean, look how accurately it portrays the situation. And it's, this was written thousands of years ago. The times don't change much. Satan's strategies in the garden are still his strategies today to get us to reject God and follow his ways. It hasn't changed much. Those who follow Lady Folly and give in to the folly of sex fall victim to three things. As I've interrogated the story of my life with sexual brokenness, here's what I noticed. And I think this is true generally. You grow to hate and distrust authority especially the authority of God, because you start to believe that God doesn't have your best interest in mind. He doesn't care about my sexuality. He doesn't care about this being satisfied. So i got to do it on my own. We believe he's limiting our fun, holding us back, or making life miserable just to be unkind. So as we hop on that endless roller coaster that's sexual sin, we find ourselves in this endless loop of shame that hardens the heart and numbs us out to what's good. You start to get a really numb heart. You start to not be able to identify your feelings. You don't feel your feelings anymore. That's, not, that's, a, that's a sign that, that lady, you're following Lady Folly. And it leads us to believe the lies that sex is about us only, meeting our own needs. We disassociate sex with its intended purpose to addict us to another human being. That's part of the purpose of sex to addict you to another human being, to do life together in perfect union, representing the union that you have with Christ and that Christ has with his church. That's how valuable it is. It's about serving each other, practicing selflessness, sacrificial gospel-like giving. Again, from my friend Robert, he says, we pervert God's design for sex from a selfless, sacrificial act into a debased, narcissistic, narcissistic ritual with ourselves. Real, naked human beings no longer arouse. And he quotes liberal feminist author Naomi Wolf, who made this observation, real, naked human beings in our culture are now just bad porn. Can you imagine the identity crisis that particularly women might have because of that? I'm just bad porn? What does that say about me? What does that say about my inerrant beauty and worth? So we believe the lie that sex is not a big deal, and we undervalue sex as this casual experience. That, to me, is the terrifying place our culture is headed with virtual experiences, with digital porn. It's so geared towards control and giving you whatever experience you think of and affirm that many people believe now that sex alone is better than the real thing. Musician John Mayer. Do you all know who John Mayer is? Famous musician. He says, Internet pornography has absolutely changed my generation's expectations. When I watch porn, it's, it's if it's not hot enough. I'll make up backstories in my mind. My biggest dream is to write pornography. This is a man who's made millions of dollars doing what it seems like God has created him to do, which is to make music. And he says, my dream is to write pornography because I grew up in my own head. As soon as I lose that control, once I have to deal with someone else's desires, I cut and run. Pornography is easier to control. You feel that constant gratification and affirmation that especially men are looking for, that feels like respect. And it always seems positive. And it's literally 
eating our souls away. I like to say, you know, it's a lot like Israel in the wilderness where they just wanted, when things got tough, when things get tough, that's when we want to medicate. And when things got tough for them, where do they want to go? Let's go back to slavery in Egypt. That's better than following God out here. At least I know where a meal's going to come from. I don't care if I'm abused and oppressed. That sounds better. When we choose pornography, we are choosing the same thing. We're saying slavery sounds better. I'll just live like that. Because our expectations are so low of what the experience of God should be. And you listen to the the words of Lady Folly in Proverbs 9. The woman folly is loud. She's seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are the depth of hell. I mean, does anything... Those words describe our culture and the struggle perfectly. If you're addicted to pornography, if you're battling sexual struggles and giving in and medicating with it, then you are simple. You are naive. And God will not be mocked. God doesn't, God is gracious, but he is not pleased with our sexual sin. He will judge it, and he will reject those who reject his authority. That's what's at stake. And, like, I don't say that to heap shame on you or judgment, but to produce sobriety. Like it says in that proverb, can you carry fire close to your chest and not be burned? No, but we think we can. We think we're invincible. We think we're so healthy and so strong that we just, we're fine. No one has to know. This isn't hurting anyone else. We're holding fire to our chest. So it begs the question, what can we do? What hope do we have? Where do we go from here? How do we wage war against this tyrant? Where does our help come from? And that leads us to the wisdom of sex. So in order to combat this enemy, we need to not only know our enemy, but we also must know how to defend ourselves. And here in this passage, it says, be attentive to his word. Respect his authority. Keep your way far from her. Don't go near her door. Drink from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. That means we're meant to have a partner or a spouse, a wife, who we find our satisfaction from. And that is good. And vice versa. You're supposed to find a husband in whom you find your satisfaction. The Christian narrative is saying that God created the male and female to be together in union. And that anything outside of that design is a perverted reality. Is not what's best. Is not what God created us for. And that is a hard message to reconcile and deal with today. Again, that's why it's so important. How do we talk about these things winsomely but boldly with our friends and our neighbors? If If you're not married, it means you wait until God provides your own cistern and well to drink from. 
But anything outside of that is toxic. That's why we say, and it sounds old-fashioned, but sex is for marriage. God created it for marriage. And it goes on to say soberingly, and you may have not picked up on this, but it says, all your ways are seen by God. He knows all of your paths. You can't hide from Him. There's no hiding places. Your room with your laptop or your phone is not a hiding place. God sees it. Your own mind is not a hiding place. Your own heart, God knows it. He created it. That means we expose him to it when we indulge or act out. And then in verse 23, he says, you'll need discipline. He says, you'll die for lack of discipline. It's pretty clear. What discipline do you have in your life for this? What guards your mind and your heart, your actions? I mean, it's as simple as a blocker on your computer is one good place to start, but then a reorganizing and a reprogramming of your heart and mind through the Word of God and through prayer and through accountability. So sex is like fire. And in the right context and environment, like a fireplace, it burns bright and warms the body, but outside of it, it burns the house down. So if you listen to Lady Folly, you lack wisdom and sense. You've been living as a fool and a simpleton. You've become a statistic and joined the mass delusion that it doesn't matter how you satisfy your sexual desires as long as you do. And I'll close with this. The mass hysteria of the culture's indulgence in sexual sin has created an identity crisis amongst millions. We've now labeled anyone who believes there are boundaries of sex and sexuality within the limits the God of Christianity has prescribed in his holy word as being intolerant bigots or judgmental haters. One major trend that's paved the way for the way we view ourselves, our sexuality, and our identity is the rise of personhood theory. A woman named Nancy Pierce, who I've mentioned up here many times, she wrote a book called Love Thy Body. Highly recommend it. Devour that book. It's incredible. Puts a lot of words to what we're feeling and thinking and a lot of the confusion. But she talks about personhood theory. And she does an excellent job describing how the separation of personhood and body in our culture has led us to believing we can do whatever we want with our bodies without consequences. The theory is that our bodies are separate from our personhood or who we truly are. Who we truly are is decided within our own mind, part of our body, by our own experiences. No one can tell you who you are simply based on your gender. It's also led to the abortion epidemic because people now believe that a baby is not a person until a certain age and thus just a body that can be disposed of as we choose. The other major ramification of personhood theory is gender dysphoria. Our bodies no longer inform who we are. Our bodies are, as one person put it in her book, meat packets. Carrying our organs and blood, but having no defining characteristic that inform who we were created to be. And she talks about queer theory actually chops the body up in disconnected parts that have nothing to do with each other, breaking any link between biological sex, gender, and desire. We live in a time when it's become mix and match, allowing us to create ourselves to be whoever and whatever we can imagine. This is in large part because our society has become anti-body. Another form of an ancient heresy called Gnosticism. The material's evil and bad, spiritual's good. She writes this, The central question is how we define identity. 
It's widely assumed today that humans are driven primarily by desires, feelings, and attractions, that your sexual feelings define your identity. By contrast, the Bible has a much more earthly, physical, and bodily definition of sexuality. Male and female, he created them. The Christian sex ethic is grounded in the way humans were originally created. In the beginning is where we learn who we are, how God made us, and what it means to be fully human. Some forms of therapy and ministry seek to help a person change their sexual feelings, but this is not effective. A far more liberating and helpful discovery is that sexual identity as a man or woman is fixed and secure by our Creator as a good gift. Our true selves are not defined only by feelings and desires, but by the entirety of our beings. It is Christianity that honors the body as male and female, instead of subordinating biological sex to psychological feelings. The reason something like transgenderism is on the rise in our culture is because of the void of the transcendent. We live in an age of unbelief. A philosopher named Charles Taylor calls it the secular age. This is an age of self-sufficient naturalism devoid of the supernatural. Where every other culture looked upward for meaning, purpose, and identity, we now look inward into the imminent frame, as Taylor calls it. This makes religion just one option among many to find meaning and purpose. Irreligion has now become a religion. And Taylor points out that this new secular age is not sustainable or plausible because it's not true. There are cracks in the secular, and something like transgenderism is one of those cracks. Within transgenderism, there's a disconnect between the way our bodies reveal themselves to be and what we identify with. Who is the, the question is, who is the person trapped in this body? Something is going on that tells people there's something other than what their bodies reveal. And it's really a conflict of non-physical reality, a soul cry for identity. That's where we need the gospel. Christian worldview says we're both body and soul. Both are good gifts of God, but fallen and subject to profound disordering of our design. We should not be surprised by the confusion and the outcry. Christianity offers the hope of a holistic redemption of both body and the soul by Jesus. One day, body and soul will exist in perfect harmony. That's why we can look at someone who struggles with gender dysphoria, and we can say the struggle is worth it because one day there will be healing. You can know your identity now and it will be fully realized one day by the grace of God. That's why Christianity has something to say about this. Tim Keller says our society pushes us toward a paradoxical misunderstanding of sexuality that we must unravel and solve if we are to be wise. And I'd say the Holy Scriptures are key to unraveling that. It's an issue of transcendence. If there's no value in us by God, then who are we? We don't know who we are because we don't know the God who created us in his image. That's where the church comes in. That's why Jesus is so necessary. He secures our identity through his sacrifice and his work. So this morning, if you're convicted of your sexual sin, wrestling with the shame and the failures in this area, you've got to know this morning that the God of Christianity is the true friend of sexual fools. He loved the prostitutes. He loved the pimps. He loved the broken. He doesn't ask you to change. He says, I'll change you. No other religious figure 
Walker Sudan. So let's go to Jesus now as we go to this table, a table of for renegade, misfit sinners and find the healing that we need. Let's pray.